Hello, and welcome to another Paradox podcast. This podcast is the next in a series of interviews I'm doing with the speakers who've kindly agreed to come to our first annual Free Speech and Medicine Conference, which is October 28th to 30th in beautiful Bedeck, Nova Scotia. Check out all the details in the speaker list on our website at freespeechandmedicine.com. I knew Trish Wood's name a long time ago. She was a CBC investigative journalist, and I grew up in a house with CBC on most of the, of the day. This was back in the days when Peter Zosky st told stories that united us, when investigative reporters like Trish held the feet of government and big business, business to the flames. It wasn't perfect, but it felt like a force that held Canada together rather than working to divide us. During the first year of COVID, I was down in the dumps. I couldn't get any real news anywhere. Few people were willing to openly discuss and debate the difficult issues that had arisen. I wanted to hear the other side of the story about COVID. You know, the one that governments and their minions were obviously suppressing. The one that Pfizer and Moderna did not want told. Then a friend emailed me a link to one of her episodes. I was hooked and I've listened to everyone since. I love the podcast format. There's no sound bites. There's no compressing a 10 minute complex idea into a meaningless catchphrase. You could do a full exploration of difficult issues. I haven't bothered listening to the news in several years, and I don't miss it. I contend that people who watch mainstream news in the last several years are less and less connected to reality than those who don't, and I've written about this previously in one of our Paradox substacks. Thank goodness for people like Trish. She gives me hope that the truth will finally get out there. Trish has kindly agreed to be one of our speakers at our Free Speech and Medicine conference she will also be helping with speaker introductions and moderating panel discussions. In our discussion today, we talk about how Trish slid from the mainstream news into her current role as a podcast host, how trust in Pfizer became a keystone of left-wing politics, and the role that the media has played in the very profound and disturbing changes that we've seen in our society over the last few years. Remember to check her out at trishwoodpodcast.com. I hope you enjoy listening to her as much as I do. I've turned the tables on Trishwood. Trishwood is usually <laughs> the person asking the questions, and this time it's me asking her the questions. So thanks very much to her. Uh, you true. know, as a as a brief intro, Trish, uh, check out trishwoodpodcast.com and definitely sign up. Trish has been a voice of sanity through the last couple of years. I tune into every one of her podcasts and she has been one of the things that's managed to keep me at least a little bit sane. Many people would argue with how well she's done, but <laughs> if, if she failed, it's not her fault. Um, so anyway, Trish, uh, maybe I can start off by asking you a little bit about, um, you know, who, who you are, where you're from, uh, a little bit, maybe just a brief thumbnail sketch of your background in journalism that brought you to, to this point where you're doing a podcast. Sure. Well, my background that I guess is germane to to COVID-19 and censorship in medicine is that I was um, an investigative reporter for about half of my professional life, partly at um, CBC Radio as it happens. I was their medical and science reporter, won a few awards for what we did there. And interestingly, it was covering Tony Fauci during the AIDS crisis. And um, I didn't, I had limited respect for him then, and that continues. And, um, and then I went on to, um, to, and also in that job, I did a lot of pharmaceutical products liability cases too. So what that meant was, um, 
if a drug was perceived to be doing some harm, there was usually a very clever lawyer somewhere in the States or here, mostly in America though, because they could do contingency law, um, who was litigating it and got something called discovery and could provide me with documents that would show that the case that they were making has merit. That's how a lot of investigative journalists get their get their information is through some kind of ongoing litigation. So I did a lot of that and I learned a lot about the clinical trials process. I learned a lot about how pharmaceutical companies work, um, how they can be uh, dishonest, obviously, and also make, make mistakes and how we rectify that. So it's interesting to be living again through a time where people are worried about the vaccine and all of the kind of safeguarding processes that we would have been looking at in the late 80s and early 90s don't apply because so much um so many promises were made about not suing you know by governments etc so so that that was my background that's germane to what we're doing um and then i went on to um host a show called the fifth estate for 10 years on CBC television. And uh, again, I did some uh, ph pharmaceutical products liability stuff there as well. But but the, I think the main uh, connection to that work and the podcast I do now is that it's a way of looking at the world. It's a way of always thinking if you dig deeper and talk to the right people, you can find the answer to a question that's really bothering you. People like me who are investigative journalists uh, in the DNA are, I, I'm happy to sit in a room with a box full of documents and try to find out what the truth is. And so that takes a certain kind of person. And um, I did well at Fifth Estate, won awards there too. And then left and wrote a book about the Iraq war, ended up with a pretty decent career doing true crime documentaries because it allowed me a chance to travel and I was a single mom. And then I just finished a big film for Amazon Studios on uh, Ted Bundy. It was kind of a feminist take on the Bundy murders. It did well and was well received. But then COVID hit and I thought, well, what am I going to do now? And all of a sudden, all of the skills that I had honed and still had and believed in very much were very much um, needed in the telling of this story because I woke up one day and I realized that nobody was telling the truth about COVID-19. The legacy media had a narrative that they were pushing. When the vaccine came out, we couldn't ask questions about the vaccine. Doctors were being told almost to read a script when they were talking to patients. You and I talked about that, didn't we? That you had what sounded like a mantra being given to you when you were when you were uh, talking to patients about various uh, controversial issues that shouldn't have been controversial. So all of the things I did back then came to play when I started the podcast because, which I call Trish Wood is critical, because it seemed to me that we weren't hearing the whole story and more importantly we weren't allowed to talk about the fact that we weren't hearing the whole story that doctors were not being allowed to debate it uh, media was not asking anybody hard questions that i was seeing at the beginning of COVID 19 so i just kind of slotted in there and it's been a very stressful two and a half years. I will tell you, it's been very stressful. But I've met a lot of wonderful people like you, so that's good. Yeah, well, I, I'm glad you include me in, in your list of, of wonderful people. I, I, I don't deserve it, but I, I appreciate you saying that. I, I, I'm, I'm so appreciative for you. You really have 
interviewed a lot of people um, who are, you know, quote unquote controversial in the in the mainstream way of looking at at it. But um, you know, just my my take on nutrition. I, I certainly, having been a guy who grew up with CBC on in the house, and then in my adult life until until five or seven years ago, yeah, um, I certainly knew your name and uh, was really kind of pleased to see that you had a podcast and you're interviewing interesting people. And I, I like the fact that you've learned to be skeptical about, uh, you know, especially the drug company influence on medicine, which I, I really feel like the, the, when you look the the people who get higher up positions in the regulatory authorities that are supposed to be regulating the drug companies have often been working for the drug companies before or go to work for them after. And to me, there's always like, it's almost like if, if we had the organized crime unit being headed by the guy who was the head of the hell's angels for the last five years, and then he moved into being the head of the organized crime unit, it almost feels like that's the way our drug company regulation works recently. And I just feel like we've become, very credulous and overly accepting of, of um, what the drug companies have to tell us just really since COVID started before that, it was quite all right to question Pfizer's ulterior motives, but I, I, I don't know. And I guess I'm, I'm saying all this, asking you, do, do you have a sense of how that happened? Like it used to be the left wing of the political spectrum that was, that was skeptical of Pfizer. Now it's the left wing that says you can't question them. I know this is one of the most, troubling things uh, to me that, you know, media people tend to be mostly left of center. And that's used to not be a bad thing when the left in politics felt that they were championing the working class and the people without power against things like drug companies and powerful corporations, etc. But that has flipped now. So that the people in the media are still left of center, but being left of center doesn't mean that at all. It means you're part of a big corporate narrative that's driven by certain ideologies and that you cannot veer from that. So it's very, very frightening for me, for instance, to hear the media repeating things like safe and effective, safe and effective. They still use that phrase, even though there are now have now been credible studies about the vaccine. Um, certainly myocarditis is no longer even considered an out there uh, adverse event. I mean, they have it. And I think Denmark is not giving it to people under the age of 50. Um, there was some other, oh, uh, Paul Offit today or yesterday was quoted in the Daily Mail as saying young people shouldn't take the new vaccine. And he's like a total vaccine booster. So obviously it wasn't safe and effective, right? They've been chanting a mantra that's not true. That's what censorship does. It's not just about not having kind of open source information about things we need, like all of the clinical trial data, the contracts around uh, the vaccines, et cetera, et cetera. It's also about a closed way of speaking about it because, you know, censorship isn't just about what you say, it's about what not saying things or saying things in a certain way does to the human brain. And the repeating of the safe and effective became almost a kind of, I hate to use this word because it's, it's quite dramatic, but I'll use it just for purposes of example. It's almost like brainwashing. So my neighbors who are critical thinkers in many other parts of their lives are just saying, oh yeah, well the vaccine's safe and effective, right? They're, they have no, 
idea at all that they should question it or look at their risk-benefit ratio or anything along those lines because the, the repeating of that phrase, I think purposely, has convinced people to not question it. It's become embedded now in their mindset and the idea of having an argument about it for many, many people right now is still uh, not done. And that's very much part of censorship. It's the it's the clouding of the uh, a person's uh, brain. It, it's, it's almost like infusing people with a sense of cognitive dissonance. And a, a friend of mine who's a propaganda expert, he's at um, Uppsala University in Sweden. He says that, and this has happened, I know it's happened, he said, they flood the zone with all kinds of repetitive phrases and contradictory information. And what prompted him to say that was me saying, I said, you know, I don't even know what's right anymore. I used to be able to follow along with the data and the studies as they were released. And I'm finding there's so much contradictory stuff, stuff that doesn't make any sense. I don't know what to make of it anymore. And he said, well, that's kind of what happens with propaganda. They, they want to confuse you. And I feel like that's where we are. But I also feel we are traumatized. I, I feel we've come through two and a half years of not feeling we can trust what's being said by the institutions that represent the pillars of our democracy. I feel that way. I no longer trust my doctor. I no longer trust my government. I no longer trust public health. And those feelings have to do with the fact that we were either lied to, propagandized, or the veil of censorship fell over an, an issue that we needed to know more about. Mm -hmm. and it's going to take ages for them to dig out of this, I, I believe. Yeah, very, very good points, Trish. And, uh, you know, uh, one of the things that really struck me over the last couple of years, um, I, one of my favorite, favorite teachers in medical school is a elderly retired surgeon, and he was a wonderfully wise man. And I remember him, he'd teach us, he'd look over his, you know, half rim glasses at us and tell us wise things that I've always remembered. And one of them was, <laughs> yeah. Uh, we, talk, we were talking about a medication which was new at that time, which is the mid-90s, and they said, be not the first to try new things, nor the last to discard the old. Mm. And that's always stuck with me, and, and that's why I was kind of put off by the bandwagon jumping that went on when this brand new vaccine came out. And I, I have no problem with people offering it, taking it, discussing it you know, talking to their patients about it, even encouraging their patients if they feel that's what's right. But sure. it's to jump from there to forcing people to take it was very odd with a brand new vaccine and it and it violated that that age old uh, wisdom to me. So well, um, one of the stories that I did was we used the we used thalidomide as an example, which obviously this is not that I mean, thalidomide is teratogenic, meaning causing birth defects in almost 100% of women who take it in the first trimester, right? It was really, really powerful in that regard. But but, but what, what the analogy is to what we're seeing now is that there was a doctor in Australia named William McBride who, uh, he was an obstetrician, he was delivering babies, and the babies were having these bilateral limb reduction deformities. He couldn't believe it. Why are all these babies having this? And so he discovered just through good old fashioned question asking and history taking, I guess you call it in medicine, um, that they'd all taken this drug thalidomide and he immediately put out a warning. And the warning was carried around the world, right? That can't happen now. People who've tried to ring the alarm bells anecdotally 
around vaccine adverse events have been shut right down. Now, sadly, with thalidomide, even though there was really good evidence there was a problem, Canada was one of the last countries to take it off, which is our national shame. But what Dr. McBride did could not happen today with the vaccines, not suggesting that they are that powerfully dangerous as thalidomide, but I'm using the anecdotal stories about it as as an example of what doctors cannot do today. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, good point. And Trish, I feel like we could talk a long time and we would talk, talk ourselves over time. Um, I would really like to actually, but uh, maybe I should move on and, and ask you for, for the purposes of why I want to post this podcast. Yeah. Can you give us a little preview of what you're going to talk about um, without uh, stealing your own thunder, but maybe just describe what you're going to talk about in your in your talk in Cape Breton at the end of October? Well, I, I alluded to it a little bit earlier when we were at the beginning of this discussion. Part of what I want to talk about is something I'm really personally exploring and doing a bit of research on, and that is the idea that we as a citizenry have been traumatized by the censorious messaging that grew up around COVID-19 for whatever the reason for whoever's guilty. And I have not figured that out yet. I have not figured why they were all in governments around the world singing from the same censorious songbook in the same way. We will know that one day. I don't know it yet. But I feel that for us, psychiatrically, mentally, socially, I, I do believe we're kind of lost in a fog of cognitive dissonance. I know I am not the same person now that I was two and a half years ago. I have changed. And obviously part of it is seeing how easily we can be tipped over into cruelty to our friends and neighbors given the right circumstances. That was absolutely terrifying for me. Mm -hmm. But it's also really, really difficult to live in an environment where you know that the truth is not being told by most people. And I have just enough skill and knowledge and education and experience to know that the truth was not being told. I knew what the risk-benefit ratio for the virus was to some degree early on. We all did. Nobody would talk about it on the nightly news. Mm -hmm. Nobody would talk about the idea that it was a very stratified bunch of people who were getting sick and dying with this. And so living in a society, and I suspect it's not unlike the Soviet Union. I, that's how I feel. We had a mini experience of that where science was conscripted. Remember Chernobyl, all of the scientists were sucked into the big lie, right? I, I feel that we have all lived through that, and I feel that we're changed by it, especially those of us who were awake, but even the ones who weren't in some way, and that um, we have to get to the bottom of why this happened. And if we don't, I, you know, I, I, I fear for our future, but I also don't have a lot of optimism that we will. So I guess the point of my discussion is going to be, Chris, about not just medically how harmful this was, and I obviously will talk about that, but I feel that we've been traumatized by the censorious nature of how public health and the media handled this pandemic. And I think it's going to leave a long-lasting... Um, Maybe a scar. Scar is a very good word. I was going to say stain, but I think scar scar is the right word on, on many of us. 
-hmm. it's it was shameful behavior absolutely mm -hmm. shameful behavior i agree well listen thanks trish um maybe uh, unless you have anything else to add well we, i think that's a really good note to end on um i'll just encourage people again uh, check out freespeechandmedicine.com uh trish is one of our featured speakers and and i'm totally totally stoked that she actually said yes to coming she, like <laughs> i say she's been she's been a, a voice of reason and sanity throughout the last two years of of this crazy crazy pandemic that we've gone through and the crazy response to it um you know i encourage people come out you get to meet people like trish in person we get to shake hands we get to sit across a table um we get to discuss these things and look at each other in the eyes and all these things that we really haven't done since covid so uh, it's a great opportunity and i hope um, folks take advantage of it and again i'm so happy that you agreed to come so thanks again well, and this is such a good idea. Good on you for doing it. It was so needed. And what a, a beautiful, beautiful way to focus it to. I mean, you nailed it. C censorship in medicine is exactly the issue that we need to be talking about. So thank you. Lovely. Thanks again.